podcast world, this is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and today I am in Maryland talking to a good friend of mine from back home, Mr. Gabriel Martino. Gabriel, how are you doing, sir? I am doing quite well. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, it's funny that you said you're doing quite well because you took me around your company up here and I'm like, yeah, this guy's doing quite well. <laughs> so Gabriel, I mean, all right, you, start, you started off in Trinidad and now you, you came up here, you bought over a granite countertop, what, making, was it? Spe- yeah, so it's a, you know, a countertop manufacturing, consider us a manufacturing company. You know, we take raw material such as natural stone, like your granite, your marble, your quartzite. And man-made stone, like your quartz. And we fabricate that and convert that into a countertop. You know, what we call back home in Trinidad, okay, solid surface. You know, if people, and I know the, the country is moving towards more, you know, newer kitchens, nicer kitchens. So they're yeah. different surfaces. So that's what we do. And we also do cabinets as well. Some of our clients include the Hilton, Marriott. We did a job for the Federal Reserve. And then we do residentials. We, uh, we do over a thousand kitchens a year and we're just trying to grow that. And we also expanded into cabinetry and design. Yeah. You know, funny enough, just a few years ago, you were a fellow investment banker. Yes. Yes. I know you say you're still an investment professional. I would say yes. I still use my investment hat for a, a lot of my, uh, my key business decisions. This purchase was a straight up LBO or a leverage buyout, as the case may be. And I know you'd be familiar with that, uh, yeah. Mr. Valley. Well, let's mean just for the podcast, well, I'm going to break that down. So it means yeah. you took on debt to buy this business. I took on debt to buy this business. So I levered up this business. I looked at the numbers. I levered it up. And I did a leverage buyout and I acquired the assets of this business. You yeah. know, but that's, I mean, that's some risky yeah. stuff. Because, I mean, when you're borrowing to buy a business, you got to make sure that the cash flows from that exactly. business could pay off your debts or you could lose your... It's very risky stuff. You also have to be able to convince the bank to give you that funding mm-hmm. to make that acquisition. And I could go into that journey with you, like how that acquisition was completed. And I'm, I'll be honest, it was not a walk in the park. Yeah, no, you'll definitely get there. <laughs> you'll definitely get there. Yeah. But um, as many listeners would know, I like to rewind. I like to start nice. from the beginning. Maybe not from when you came out of the hospital, but early enough to say like, okay, how did you get into construction? I know you said your dad was in construction. Yeah, how did I get into construction? I mean, my dad was a tradesman, you know, mm-hmm. at heart. He's actually a small business owner, which I consider myself to be now. And I would say I learned small business from my dad. And I, I wouldn't even say small business. I probably learned micro business because small business in Trinidad, maybe it's a small business here. The numbers when you do the competition is different. But one of the key things my dad and I learned from my dad is one, treat people well, you know, use things, but appreciate people. And he has always been that guy, no matter who he worked with. He ran different businesses back in Trinidad, small businesses, and he was in the, a tradesman in construction. So as a tender age, when I was at St. Mary's, and I wanted a summer job sometimes. They go to St. Mary's every time. <laughs> and I wanted a summer job sometimes. I mean, I would go on one of his construction sites and he'd give me, you know, he'd give me a daily rate for doing that. I never really thought I'd get back into construction because construction is hard work, mm-hmm. you know? So it's really- And he never really taught you to do hard work. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're quite a jokester. Uh, <laughs> when I say hard work is a lot of physical, it takes a physical tool on you. But it's funny how life is full circle, you know, learning what he taught me and how he handled, you know, different tradesmen for me coming back and being in the trades side of the game and my business is uh, strictly 
to do with construction. Okay. So, I mean, you're growing up, you, I mean, you're in your secondary school year is going to have a very great, you're in the best secondary school. And every summer you're yes, spending yes, with yes. your dad in his construction business. But then you go to Howard University mm-hmm. and you study finance. Mm-hmm. So, like, was he mindset there? I mean, is construction in the back of your mind or is it no, just like construction finance? wasn't in the back of my mind. Um, ever since I was at St. Mary's, you know, when we had that stage, you know, you're in form three, you're trying to pick subjects. People are either trying to get into that science or that math. I think I always just wanted to be a business owner from that stage back then. So I always say, hey, let me go down the road of, you know, accounting, business, a POB, economics, that kind right. of thing. I mean, granted, I didn't need to go with those subjects to be a business owner. But in the back of my mind, that's what I was thinking then. So... To get back to your point, I wouldn't say construction was a business I wanted to be in. I just knew I wanted to run a business at some point in time. And I applied that, some of that entrepreneurial skill set at St. Mary's too. You know, I would, I'd be the guy buying flip phones, new flip phones, and then selling it to guys. I'd also be a banker at St. Mary's when I remember I had a buddy. He would spend his allowance money at the beginning of the week. So I set him up on a payment plan. I said, yeah, <laughs> you still need to, he would come to me and then borrow money to buy lunch at, um, what's the name of this place? Chukwan. By Chukwan. So I would like, hey, each day I would give you a payment plan. And then the following week when you get that allowance, you know, it comes to me and I built in the interest there. You built in that. I built that interest in there. So I've been that guy ever since. I'm also that guy when we, <laughs> we also playing. Uh, when we're watching Champions League football and we we betting on each of our sides, I'd be the bookkeeper, you know, trying to find a way to um, generate stuff. Or if I go into a camp, I would buy snacks and be that person selling so at that camp. As bookkeeper, would you would you also get your commissions and stuff? Oh yes, definitely. You know, house always wins if you're a bookkeeper. <laughs> you know, house always wins. Okay, so, so I think it has been that mindset. I don't know if that mindset now uh, brought me full circle. You know, from St. Mary's to Howard, I pursued finance as my undergrad. And I did a stint on Wall Street with Goldman Sachs for a summer. And then I also worked at a hedge fund. How was that though, working with Goldman Sachs? How was that? I, I really opened up my eyes from an investment banking standpoint. You know, you work with big business in the US. You see real money. You know, it makes you want to chase it changes your mindset. And as a young man on Wall Street from Trinidad and Tobago, strong accent, everybody that you speak to, the first thing they ask is where you're from. And then using that to propel you into different situations. I think that allowed me to open up a lot of doors in terms of what I wanted to do. You know, being able to interact with 4,500 companies, then seeing how big business work. And then from then I worked for a hedge fund. I worked for a Jewish guy out in Connecticut who taught me how to money manage, you know, and that was a tremendous experience as well. And each of these things or experiences were just adding to my toolkit, you know, to sort of get to the next level as, as to what I'm trying to accomplish. So you said that your Caribbean identity was able to propel you. Yeah, it opens doors. The minute you, even now, the minute I speak, people say, where's that accent from? Where are you from? And it gets the conversation going. You know, it, it's an easy way to have a conversation because people want to hear where you're from. People want to hear new things. They want to, they may know somebody from there. And a lot of people say, oh yeah, I know somebody from Trinidad and Tobago. Or they may ask, oh, how far south is Trinidad and Tobago? And then you're able to have that dialogue. You know, we ride above Venezuela and you you get into the history of your island. So it, it opens doors all the time, I think. 
Okay. Has never been a rest- never restricted me. Anyway. So you do your undergrad in Howard, you finish your undergrad in finance. You go on to do a master's in York. Yes. I went to York University Schulich School of Business that out in Toronto to do a master's in finance. So Toronto, after- eh? Yeah, shout out to the Raptors. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't like Golden State. Like, I don't like Golden State. I, know I, like I want them to lose. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are all the forty eight other states. Yeah, yeah. I'm a LeBron uh, fan, and anyway, yeah, I'm a LeBron. LeBron fan, I want yeah, them to feel pain. <laughs> I want them to feel pain too. Yeah. So yeah, so I lived in Toronto. So after Howard, I lived in Toronto for about four years. I did my masters there at Schulich School of Business. And that was an interesting experience because I went from Howard where I did my, my BBA in finance. I tell you, I, I worked a little bit investment banking and I worked a little bit at a hedge fund. And what prepared me to do my master's in finance was like working with some of these guys, investment banking and in the, the hedge fund world at the point in time. I was like, no, I need to sharpen my toolkit. These guys are, they learn something different. You know, I need to sharpen my toolkit. So I immediately pursued um, a master's in finance and I did my master's in finance in Toronto to just sharpen my school my toolkit. Yeah. You would advise somebody to do a master's in finance after doing a bachelor's in finance and getting work experience? Would you Would you say it's, it's worth your while? I think it was worth my while, but I wouldn't necessarily push anybody in the direction of, you know, graduate studies. It all depends what experience, what you're trying to get out of it. At that point in time, I did a BBA in finance, but I wanted to be a little bit stronger on the analytical side of finance. And that's what a master's of finance is. So it really honed in on more um, to my analytical standpoint of finance. You cover topics like structured products, creating a structured product and, you know, all this sexy fixed bond world and that sort of thing. You know Mm -hmm. I mean? I was in a classroom with guys who had their PhD in engineering from UPenn and you're looking at, numbers on a board and it's like gibberish and i'm like <laughs> and these guys are arguing with the professor saying oh you missed an alpha right there i'm like dude how do you understand the <laughs> equation you know but it, it all depends what you're trying to get out i think if you really want to sharpen your skill set uh, from an analytical finance standpoint yeah you could go down that path of a master's of finance but if you want something more broad i think an mba helps or if you just want to be an entrepreneur, just go out into the field. Just start, <laughs> yeah, just start <laughs> doing business. Yeah, okay. exactly. All right, so you finish your master's and everything. Now you hook up with some of your buddies from Howard to do... A buddy of mine, uh, we went to Howard together. And another guy who went to Morgan State, mm-hmm. you know, his brother went to Howard. So that's where the, the, uh, the tripod... Oh, right, right. So the connection was made. And then we invested in Baltimore and we started buying properties in Baltimore and right. making investment. So why why was Baltimore of interest to you? I mean, as a Trinidadian guy coming mm-hmm. up here to get some education, why did it become so important to you to buy property in like, say, some depressed areas and and turn it around and flip it? Was it just for the return or was it what? You felt like you're giving in, back in a way. Investment, you know, yeah. it's more so for the return. Um, we were investing in distressed communities and trying to extract value. And I guess that's the investor mindset. You know, you buy low, you sell high. Right. You know, um, at the point in time when we started our business, which is Chase Street Partners, DC was already hot. The acquisition prices in DC, prices were already up the roof. We missed the boat. We should have purchased property while we were at Howard and we missed that boat. And we started looking at our surrounding areas and seeing where else is going to catch on. And Baltimore was one of those communities that had a lot of distressed properties. But when you look at like what's around, 
You know, it's they have their own airport, they have their own port, rail system, two major sports teams. I mean, <laughs> development companies. You know, we were seeing the next. We we're seeing that it's uh, it's about to take off. One of the, the largest employers in the state is based in Baltimore, which is John Hopkins. There's so much was going on. I mean, two hours to New York, you know, two hours to DC, four hours to Boston. You know, it's probably a little bit longer to Boston. But yeah, um, the optics was there, you know. So we went into these communities and started looking and doing the analysis and um, starting to acquire properties when people considered. When people see crisis, we saw opportunity. When there's blood on the street, that's when you buy. Okay, all right. I hear you, um, Mr. Investment Banker. So I understand you were able to identify a housing project where you'd be able to buy in at Mm $5,000 and soon flip it for $279,000. Walk me through how that That happened. (laughs) Oh, that was back in the day when we just started. You don't get those opportunities anymore. We actually went to auction for this one. Uh, we were able to acquire this at 5000 If I show you what that property looked like, though, not many people would see the beauty. And where people don't see the opportunity, that's where we see it. Where people see crisis, we see opportunity. This had a, a physical tree growing through this property, like a physical tree growing through the roof of this property. Wow. But it was like a 10-minute walk to John Hopkins University. You know, you look down the street, you could see downtown Baltimore. It was a no-brainer for us, you know. So we uh, we able to get it a good a good price at the auction. At, by that time, it wasn't it wasn't too competitive at the auction, and we it was a full gut job. You know, we invested. And a we, what job, sorry? A full gut. A full gut is not just a, a renovation. A full gut is you're doing. It's not new construction, but it's an old building, and you're gutting the interior, the exterior, and you recreating a new building. The beauty and the challenge in Baltimore is, the beauty is the opportunity, the challenge is the blight. Blight meaning you may pass and see communities of distressed properties. So it's about being able to identify what opportunity you could acquire and then invest to turn around and uh, one either make a return or hold and generate some continual income from it. All right. So tell me about this turnaround process, though. How long did it take? How much did it cost you to do it? How many people did you have to bring on board? Okay. So the turnaround process, as I said, it was a full guard job. So we had to, we started from getting uh, design architect plans, pulling permits, getting approvals. And Baltimore is an area where there are a lot of historical buildings. And we don't only invest in Baltimore, but we invest to take advantage of tax credits. And that's the beauty of the U.S. So Baltimore has these uh, tax credit programs where if you maintain, even though you're gutting and renovating an old structure, if you maintain some of the historic elements of that structure, you could benefit from some of the tax credits. And what does that mean? That means after we invest in this property and the value of this property goes up, I'm not necessarily going to be paying or the person I sell that property to is not going to pay taxes on that new value. They're going to be paying taxes on a lower value. So in total, your monthly payment is a lot lower or your tax bill is so much lower for a 10-year period if that house is approved for that um, CHAP tax credit. So all the properties we went after in Baltimore was to benefit from CHAP tax credit. 
So, okay, so you got the trap tax credit. So you essentially paying tax on the 5000 when really and truly you have an asset that's worth some close to 300000 Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, but how much did it cost you to turn it around? So to turn it around with investment for that particular property, I think we probably put about about 150, 180 into that home. Yeah. Okay. So all in all, you would have net about 117,000 yeah. or so. Good return, maybe about 30 something percent. Yeah. All right. Nice, nice, nice. All right. So, and you would have done a lot of other properties. We have done a lot of other properties in Baltimore, similar to that. We just come, we actually just sold two. So we just sold one two months ago in April, yeah. In another upcoming area in Baltimore, Holland's Market, yeah. Okay, so tell me how we get to Granite Works now. Because you said you said you were able to purchase this company from someone. How did you come across this company? Was you, were you just scoring the markets or what? So when we were doing Chase Street Partners, I was that partner with that M&A hat on. Each partner had a different element that they came to the table. Uh, one of the guys, Ezra, he was the accounting guy. My other buddy, my other partner in there, Alex, he was more the deals guy, more of the um, underground, you know, knowing the area, being able to speak to everybody guy, you okay. know, salesperson guy. And a business and, development. Yeah, business guy. development guy. And I always had that M&A hat on. So even when we were buying one or two properties at a time in Baltimore, we were also putting together presentations and pitch books to the city and then city agencies to acquire blocks and to work on blocks. We were doing a lot, you know, and I would always say, I said, hey, if we could spend this time acquiring houses, we could also acquire businesses. And that's me with my investment hat on saying, hey, let's also look at business opportunities to acquire because we could extract some of the similar return or even more return from acquiring some of these businesses. And Granite Works came about because they were a supplier to one of their homes or one of the projects we were doing in Baltimore at the time. They were, we reached out to them to supply, the, you know, the kitchen, the countertops and the cabinetry. And speaking with the owner at the time, they said they were looking to exit. They've been in the business for a while. They came all the way from Brazil, you know, many, many years ago, started this business with one truck, two brothers, and then they grew this business into a team of 12, I mean, 18 employees and, you're looking at, you guys saw my space, about 12,000 square feet of office um, of shop and showroom space. So 3,000 for the showroom, 6,000 for the shop. And plus they have the yard, which is uh, which is another 2,000 there. And what they did is grow this business, grow this brand. Just, just I wouldn't, con- they were good salespeople. You know, they could, um, when I say these guys could sell salt, Tussalog, they're good salespeople. They weren't necessarily the best business people, but they were good salespeople. And I, I realized best salespeople don't necessarily always turn out to be the best business people. And as I said, they supplied all material and I heard that they were ready to exit. And we looked at the numbers, you know, and we struck a deal. And then I went to just raise the financing to make that acquisition. So we being you, Ezra and Alex? Or no, me. Just sorry, you? I just said, I said we, but um, I, you know, you know, I, uh, we looked at the opportunity. We actually looked at it as a group, but guys who at that point in time, we grew Chase Street, people were going in different directions. You know, Ezra wanted to start his accounting practice because he'd been accountant. Alex wanted to push and, you know, start his development because he's very passionate about real estate. He wanted to focus on real estate. And I had that M&A hat on, mm-hmm. you know, so I said, okay, let me push in this direction. But each direction that we were pushing in, we were going to find a way where we could all bring each other to the part, you know, 
do what you're trying to do right now. Try to see how we could take a dollar and circulate it within our community. Right. You know, so when he does development, we use some of my resources. Or if I need some accounting, I reach out to Ezra or if, um, you know, and, and so forth. If I need project management, I, you know, I, I put Alex on one of those projects. So it's all about just, you know, we just try to find a way how we could use the Chase Street Partners, which we started exactly. together yeah. to now catapult, is that the word, to propel us to the next level so within our individual and personal lives. You use your real estate investment company, the partners in the real estate investment company to form a broader real estate investment ecosystem. Yes. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. All right. So in terms of granite work, so, you know, you're a Trinidadian guy, a black Trinidadian guy, mm-hmm. you, come, you come across here. When I look you up, I see you doing Sheraton, you're doing Marriott Properties, you got Hilton, Holiday Inn. Mm-hmm. How do you go about winning those contracts? Because like you told me, this mm-hmm. is this is a white man's mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. You're young. You're not, they, nobody knows you. So how do you, how are you able to break in? And that's a good point. And I think it comes to the savviness that I'm talking about. I think we as Trinidadians, we could survive. I think we are built to survive, you know, and not only Trinidadians, but I'll say, you know, the African race as a whole, uh, black people, Caribbean people, people come from the diaspora who live in the U.S., you survive. And I wouldn't even only just limit it to all Caribbean people, all people from Africa, but even South America, people who come out here, you find a way to survive. So how do I go about winning some of these opportunities? It's all about using a strong brand and positioning that strong brand into front of some of the right people. And probably tapping back on my investment banking toolkit. Because when you're an investment banker, you spend time chasing deals. You know, that's what you do. You got to chase deals because not all the deals you're going to win. You shoot a hundred times. You may probably hit one, but if you hit one, it opens doors. And I sort of try to apply that same mindset. Let's get in front of a, as much people as possible. Let's try to shoot or shot a hundred times. I just need to hit once, twice, but I can't hit if I don't shoot. So you just got to keep shooting. And I think that's the mindset. So now you do that, you go out there, then you meet people and then people introduce you to people. People like to hear a good story. If you could show me another guy like me doing this, I'd be happy to meet him so that we could share some of the same experiences. But me going around the industry so far in this area, I'm the only guy that fits this level of demographic doing this. My entire team, they speak another language, you know, so it's Spanish um, or it's Portuguese then you're dealing with all the major contractors who are definitely who are white guys, et cetera. And I don't want to use race or color or whatnot to overcrowd the conversation, but it is a defining point. You know, it limits opportunities sometimes. And it's all about proving yourself when you do get that one job. You know, you tell a person, hey, give me a shot at this one job. Let me show, prove myself. And then you'll probably come again or you may not. Okay, tell me something. The incumbents, the people, the existing players in the market, do they try to make it difficult for you or so? Everybody try to make it difficult, but it's not like they're necessarily trying to say, hey, let me make it difficult for this guy. People are trying to make money. So it's not necessarily, not necessarily that they're trying to make it difficult for me. Is that they would put, do whatever they have to do to make money for their business. And I should apply that same mindset. Obviously, in a legal sense, that is to put the right things in place for my business to grow. I need to know my competition. I need to know what my competition offers. I need to know their price and be able to compete. 
aggressively or even be able to compete better trying to use more technology in the industry which is not uh, not common uh, right now to grow the retail business uh, the commercial business is a different head it's about positioning yourself with the right people to win those commercial jobs yeah really and truly mean network your network is really great as assets i mean yeah everybody could the, get the technical skills everybody could get the education or whatever it is but really and truly is who you know how you keep those people within your network and everything where you could really get those opportunities yeah okay so we spoke about how you able to win business and everything but you you mentioned that you acquired a business from people who were salesmen but not unnecessarily good businessmen right how were you able to fix those problems with any company i would say i'm still fixing some of those problems right it's all about owning up to reality you know you purchase a business and there are a lot of things i learned this was my first business acquisition the majority of stuff I did before entrepreneurial wise I've started so this one was really my first business acquisition and the due diligence portion of it is something that you shouldn't take for granted in any business acquisition I did enough due diligence and I focused more heavily on the numbers so I know I think I was getting a good price I was getting a good price for the business but then there are other things that come with the business that you need to understand how do you fix how do you tune in one of the main things is people because you inherit a people with a business and it's about being able to change your culture you know think about it these people have been working for this company for so many years and then i'm coming in no matter if they know that i own the business or not i'm an outsider and i'm a black man that's an outsider from a different part people who speak a different language and you know you come and tell them how to do something for something that they probably have more experience than I do because they've been working in this company for quite a long time. And the first aspect is showing that you could work with people. And that's why being able to treat people well is important. It comes back to what my dad told me when I was growing up, appreciate people. You know, you could use things, but you got to appreciate people. Yeah. Your business don't run on your own. You wouldn't survive if you don't have the people to make your business operational. And uh, so it was about getting in there in the beginning and working with the team, you know, letting them know what the vision I had for the business and not sort of imposing my will too harshly. You know, it's like my mom would say, you know, your hand is in the lion's mouth. You got to pull it out slowly. If you pull out your hand like this, you lose your hand. Mm-hmm. You know, so if it's in the lion's mouth, you got to gradually take your time to pull it out the lion's mouth. So I was in the lion's mouth because I just purchased a business. I was vulnerable. I didn't want all these people to up and say, okay, goodbye, new owner. Goodbye, I don't want to work for this guy. Then I'll be crippled, you know? So it's all about navigating that, learning the systems, seeing how I could apply what I know that can make the system a little bit more efficient. I know as a banker, you may come in and all I'm thinking, as an LBO guy, all this guy wants to do is cut, you know, cut, Mm -hmm. cut, cut. But you got to be mindful what you're cutting, you know? If you cut everything, people start looking at you like, hey, what's going on? So you had to fire a good bit of people? I, I didn't fire anybody, but if you didn't fit, you eventually left. I just oh, put okay. it that way. You know, so it's, I put things in place where I say the right people stay around. All right. So in terms of advice for mm-hmm. our listeners, let's say, you know, you're a Caribbean person, you know, moving to America, whatever it is, your yeah, yeah, entrepreneurship and everything. How would you advise that person to go about, you know, starting your own business in America? I think, I think the U.S. 
gives a lot of entrepreneurs opportunity to get stuff off the ground. I mean, the ease of doing business here, it's, they do a good job. They do a good job of putting things in place for business owners to start the business, you know, from the legal standpoint, from if you don't need an office space, if you need, you know, just some of the simple things. Uh, meeting clients, the market. And then you're looking at a population of about 400 million or so odd people. And it's, you have scale. You have economies of scale. You have access. So the U.S. puts things in place. It's now how you go about using some of these things that are in place, doing the right research, doing the right research, putting yourself out there, putting in work. You know, some people want the reward. When it's time to do the work, they realize how difficult the work is. I mean, they're sleepless nights. Running a business is not a walk in the park. There are things that keep me up at night. I'm quite sure uh, people who have a, a nine to five, some things don't keep them up at night. And yes, and probably some do, you know, I'm not saying all, but I'm just saying it's from an advice standpoint in the US, I would say know what you want to get into, do the adequate research. And when I say research, I mean, see what opportunities are there that could help your business. Reach out to right people, you know, and just ask for some advice uh, before you make a decision. But at some point you have to make a decision. And then I would say, just jump right in, sink or swim. If you really want to do this, you can't do it. Entrepreneurship to me, I don't think is part-time. You got to be doing this thing full-time. So it's not a case where you could... Um, be running a job and then trying to do your own business. One one is going to suffer. Either your job is going to suffer, your business is going to suffer, or really and truly both is going to suffer because both are pulling your time. So if you want to do a business, I say just run right in and just pursue it. You know, funny you say that because, I mean, there, there's also a school of thought that says hey, you work your job. Yeah. You know, you, so you provide that, um, that sure source of income. Yeah. And you use that income to actually finance your business. So yet your company essentially is, is your first investor, mm-hmm. you know, in your company. Like, how, what do you think about that, about that thinking? I think a lot of people do that. When I was working, I mean, I had um, opportunities running, you know, making income. But I would say if you really want to grow that business, one is going to suffer. And you're robbing from one. You know, you're robbing from your employer and you're robbing from yourself. Because unless you plan to work your business after hours, which is not detri- which is I think would be detrimental to your health. <laughs> you know, you you do you do a regular hour work week, and then mm. after hours you're trying to run a business. You're not at the same level of productivity that you are if you're giving that your full attention. Granted, if you you know you say hey you want to move and start your own business and you start putting things in place before you leave your job, you know, and you haven't gone into it fully yet, okay, then, but if you're trying to run something fully and then you're also working, I think you'd be rubbing one. And I've seen people who, in my organization, they try to run a business at a sense. And I see how my organization suffers, you know? So it's, I don't think it's fear unless you're very transparent. If you're transparent with that person that you're working with, your employer, and say, yeah, what? I'm giving you my time because I'm valuable. But at the end of the day, I want to run my own business. So I'm working on my business as well. And there's some sort of transparency there. I think that that helps because you're no longer hiding to run a business. You know, you're open. 
you're mm-hmm. upfront about it. And the two parties involved, the one that the person that's investing, they're really investing in you because they're not investing in the business. They're not getting equity from the business. That person that's investing with you for their business or their company knows what's happening, knows that you invested, you know. So I know, I know you mentioned ease of doing business, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I know you also had a few endeavors that you're trying to get off the ground in Trinidad. So I just want you to just kind of contrast. How would you compare your experiences in trying to do business in Trinidad compared to doing business up here in Maryland? At present, at present, it's easier to do business in the U.S. It's easier to do business in the U.S. for a few things than Trinidad because you have access to different opportunities that you could put yourself into. And when I say opportunities, I mean resources to get started as a young entrepreneur, right? Granted, in Trinidad, there are a lot of opportunities to get off the ground. There are a lot of business opportunities that you could take advantage of. There are a lot more arbitrage opportunities that you wouldn't find up here. So that's the benefit of the market in Trinidad and Tobago. Up here, everybody's doing something that you may think of. Back in Trinidad, you could think of something that you know no one is doing and you could get involved in it. You know, it's very rare in an efficient market that we live in, in the U.S., when a market is inefficient, it creates opportunity to make money. And that's the beauty. Like that $5,000 house in Baltimore. Exactly. You know, so you see average charge. And I think that's what you get from places like Trinidad and Tobago. It's a phenomenal place where you could, the opportunities to get business done. But I think starting off as an entrepreneur, sometimes the business environment it makes it tough for young entrepreneurs to really get off the ground. And I, you know, I hear too many times, young entrepreneurs just trying to get funding and it, it's like a stopgap, you know, if they can't get it from government or from a state agency, you know, it's difficult to get from um, the bank or whatnot. When I say ease of business in the U S there are programs in place that makes it a lot easier for entrepreneurs to get capital and access to capital. You know, they're like SBA programs where the government would say, here, yeah, what well, it gives the bank an incentive to lend to small businesses by ensuring that lending up to above 75%. So you give that bank an incentive to invest in a, in a small business, which is a risky investment, but there's some bit of a cover with that insurance from the Fed, from the government, from the US government. And what they see is by investing in small businesses, small businesses turn into medium businesses. Small businesses employ the majority of people in the US. You know, it's not big business. Small businesses employ the majority of people in the U.S. You look at the numbers for small businesses. So, and by the employing people, eventually it turns out everybody wins. The government wins, the community wins, and the business wins. You know, you create growth. And I think Trinidad and Tobago, we need to find a way where we could put something in place, you know, to allow small businesses to grow. Because when small businesses grow, that is how you really diversify the economy. That is how the government gets revenue because small business grow, they're higher. Taxes yeah. come in from businesses, taxes come in from individuals. Then people could buy, then people spend money. But you need small businesses to have opportunities to grow. And we do, I think, in Trinidad and Tobago, we have a lot of capital that is sitting there. It's not being invested in some of these small businesses because people are risk averse. Now, granted, I was a banker. So, um, you know, you have certain parameters that you have to meet to get past your risk department because you have a fiduciary duty 
to your stakeholders, your shareholders, you know, your, your depositors, you know, you can't just go lending money to anyone. So there's that risk cover. And I'm not saying that we go out there lending to anyone, but if we could put some sort of structure in place where it makes it a lot easier for small businesses to get access to capital so that they could grow. Okay. Yeah. So I know you say you're an investment professional at heart. So would you say your main goal through everything that you do, Chase Street, Granite Works, is really to buy low, sell high? I mean, it's essentially, I wouldn't say that is the main thing I do in my life. Yeah. <laughs> you're making me sound like I'm a greedy person. No, 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 but no. business essentially is about providing a service or a product. You, pro- you acquire that service or product at a particular price and you sell it at a higher price than you pay for. If you're not doing that, you're not running a profitable business or you're running a charity. To answer your question, investment professional at heart. Yeah, I mean, I like to look at assets, you know, whether it's... um whether it's a business, whether it's real estate or whatnot, and see if I could get that asset at a lower price or at a, at a fair price where it could appreciate at some point in time or at a price where I could extract value from that price. You know, it's about taking a widget, taking a pencil and see how much lead you could get out of that pencil. Or right now I'm at the stage where I'm looking at another acquisition, which I think I should complete before the end of summer, which would be complementary to the Granite Works brand. Yeah, so... Yeah, just about to get into that. So, yeah, I mean, what's next? I know you're looking at a big contract right now, looking at a big acquisition right now. You mm-hmm. always have that, which is an acquisitions hat on. So what's next? What can you tell us? So the next is I've been streamlining since I acquired Granite Works last year. I've been streamlining a few things, moving locations, building out the right team, um, getting the, the necessary certifications to go after certain contracts. Um, building my relationship based on the commercial side of the market. And then also I'm um, looking to acquire another business within that same field. I, I mean, I can't disclose the details just yet, but it would be a complimentary business to the Granite Works brand. And we're going through the numbers with the seller. Um, so yeah, I do have that M&A hat on. Um, I don't say I walk into every room with it. So still invite me to your parties. Don't think I'm just coming <laughs> here to acquire a business. No, I'm not that guy. But yeah, this is another opportunity that I'm looking at. You know, it's a, it's a business that has been around for 30 plus years, strong reputation, good bones, uh, strong brand, great location, strong cash flows. You know, and those are some of the things I look at when, you know, I'm looking to make an investment. I'm also looking at Trinidad and Tobago. You know, I'm onboarding one guy. He's an engineer in Trinidad. He can't get a job. So I'm, um, I'm onboarding him to be my, uh, my remote project manager. I already have somebody hired out in the Philippines. So this is my first person I'm testing in Trinidad and Tobago where um, he would do my estimating and my, uh, my bid takeoffs virtually. So yeah, those are some of the things in the pipeline right now. Okay, awesome, awesome. So you mentioned certifications I, and I understand that you're now able to bid for government contracts because yeah. of a certification you, you awarded. Can you tell us more yeah, so it's it's considered MBE, DBE, SBE certification. And I don't like to um, throw out acronyms without saying what they mean, <laughs> like I did earlier. Like with chap. Chap. <laughs> <laughs> so SBE is small business enterprise, DBE is disadvantaged business enterprise, and MBE is minority business enterprise. So when I was acquiring this business, I was acquiring it for the name and I was acquiring it for what it does. And I realized in this market, there are not many minority business enterprises doing this type of work. So that is where I had that personal, that personal valuation in the back of my head. I didn't share that, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
So the first thing I did when I acquired the business is go after that certification, which I recently received. And that gives me access to um, any federal contracts and federal opportunities, opportunities that get federal funding. You know, they're required to have a certain percentage of people that are certified, SBE, DBE, and MBE certified. And that is what that certification is. It's great for all the big construction companies like the Clarks, the Tuners, et cetera, because they like to have subcontractors who have that certification. So it meets their threshold and whatnot. Yeah. Hey man, Gabe, it sounds like you're doing everything the right way. And I mean, I'm really excited to see what you end up doing next. So as you look to wrap up right now, I mm-hmm. want to know if there's anything. I want to, we're going to give you open mic, mm-hmm. open forum, open platform to see if there's anything that you want to leave us with that we didn't get a chance to cover today. Man, Vali, it's a pleasure one having you here. You know, you got to give hats off to yourself for what you're doing in terms of creating a platform for people to have these conversations. You know, I think this is important. I listened to some of your, I tried to make time to listen to some of your podcasts as well. And I learned so much from what people do. And it's important as entrepreneurs to get yourself out there. One of the programs I was recently in was 10,000 Small Businesses program, which was funded by Goldman Sachs, you know, out in Baltimore. And what it did, it brought small businesses together. And you pretty much train small businesses for, I would say, for a few months, let's say four or five months, give them access to different resources, uh, different businesses from different industries. And you get to learn from these different businesses. I'm saying that to say we have a wealth of small businesses in the Caribbean and Trinidad and Tobago. It's about creating a platform where some of these small businesses could come together and interact because it's important that we as small businesses or we as businesses, we don't have to use the word small, but we as businesses, you know, entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, old entrepreneurs, no matter the age, no matter the gender, we go through some of the same problems. It may be in a different industry, but if it's one thing that is constant, we have some of the same problems. And there's some other business that was able to handle that problem and you could learn from that business. So always take the time to reach out to different businesses. You want to start a business, don't be isolated to your own segment. Sort of spread your wings. Try to find out what are other people doing because learning from other people is only going to help you as you develop yourself personally and as you develop your business. You know? Yeah, I agree. Definitely learning through osmosis. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's awesome. Man. All right. So podcast world, there you have it. Seeking value with Gabriel Martino. Subscribe to Craven Power Lunch at CravenPowerLunch.com slash subscribe. Check us out on CastBox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, Podcast World, Gabe. Lodge up yourself. All right. <laughs> Until we meet again. Maryland, DMV, DC Metro, we are out. <laughs> <laughs>